This morning I'm bringing the text from Ephesians chapter 5, a passage that we've looked at quite a bit in the last several weeks, and we're turning back there again as we now consider the church. I'm in Ephesians 5, I'm going to read verse 23, and then skip down to verse 29 through 32 to emphasize something very particular about the church. Now hear the word of God, Ephesians 5, verse 23. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Verse 29. For no one ever hateth his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Our gracious Father in heaven, what a great mystery this is before us. And how profound it is as we consider the truth from the Word of God. We confess that we cannot in of ourselves discern this, so we ask the Spirit who is the giver of this truth to discern these things which are spiritually discerned. Give us an understanding in our minds and in our hearts and pray that we would embrace them with our entire lives and give ourselves over to you. Today, under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. You may be seated. We have, since the beginning of this year, been going through a recasting of the vision of heritage, and we are now in a third aspect of that vision. We began with the gospel itself from a very individual perspective. We looked at how that then expanded in the second aspect into the family, households, to be particular. And now we look at it at the broader aspect of the household of God, the church. It is here that we will spend some time, because as we think about the vision of heritage, we have to make sure that we are in conformity with the Word of God, and that the vision of heritage is really the vision of of the church. So we come to the church itself. It is quite beyond the scope of our vision casting for this year to cover a detailed and comprehensive doctrine of the church. But I do find it quite necessary to go over some very basic concepts due to the amount of confusion and ignorance that there is in our modern world about the doctrine of the church. And I'm talking about in our modern world within the church herself. In the course of our looking at these specific doctrines of the church, I'm sure there will be quite a bunch of questions. In fact, I hope to raise a lot of questions. Perhaps more questions will be stimulated than we can perhaps answer. And if, if I can achieve that objective and you're inquisitive on those things, then that is good. But my objective is not merely to tell you how it is, but rather to work together to help us all understand a little bit more of what the Scripture itself says about the church. 
It is my hope that we can spend some very good quality time in our afternoon Q and A times, which uh, I'm hoping to give quite a bit of focus to, and I hope that you will begin writing down questions or even where you disagree with points. Write those down. Let's discuss those further to gain a greater understanding of the church. It's going to be very important for this generation that's rising up, the, our children and our grandchildren, to understand these very kernel truths so that they can bear them on into another generation who may be quite hostile against the church. I don't pretend to know even half of the answers to the vast number of questions that, that even I myself have about this particular topic, nor do I contend that I've got it all figured out. Quite the opposite. The more I learn, the more I recognize I don't know. But the path I will take in this particular venture is to help us understand what the church is, first of all, and secondly, what her role is, what her purpose is, what her responsibilities are, what should we be about. As we think about what the church is and what she should be doing, I'm dealing first with the noun, and then I'm dealing with the verb. First the being, then the doing. First the ontological aspects, then the economic activity, if I can use the Trinitarian connotations there. Now this is not a simple or easy matter because the church has many facets and and some aspects. The church is as much to us a mystery as the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. There is a mystery that we need to confess and understand. A mystery that we must simply leave to some extent as a mystery. Let me give you a sample of what I mean about the challenge before us in understanding the nature of the church and why some of it will simply have to be left not understood. The church itself, ecclesia means a called out people. The Bible refers to her as the elect. It refers to her as an everlasting kingdom. It is called the household of faith. It is called the pillar in the ground of the truth. It is called the body of Christ. It is called the bride of Christ. It is called the Israel of God, the new Jerusalem. And it is called the mother of us all. And it is called the temple of the living God. Okay? Some of her characteristics of which are described in the Word of God are both visible and invisible. Both localized and universal or Catholic. Historic and triumphant. She is holy. She has in her both unsaved and saved alike on the one hand, and only the elect on the other. The church, like a person, has a body and a spirit. She is no mere society, but the church is a living organism and different from all other organizations or gatherings of people. She is corporate and one, but made up of many diverse members. She exists 
in many localized congregations, yet themselves are referred to and considered fully the church. Yet it is also universal and includes other churches throughout all generations in the one. That's just a sampling of the biblical concepts of the church. Now, if you can keep all those concepts of the church and hold them all up at one time, you're doing better than I am. But she will still remain quite a mystery. While we do need to understand her, as far as the Scriptures will reveal, we must be content not to explain her beyond it and leave it as a mystery. She will remain mysterious. And in that mysterious aspect of the church, there's an attraction and a beauty that comes along with it. We are greatly confused about the church today. And I'm talking about the modern evangelical church. I'm talking about us. Yet the Scripture is so profound in its teaching on the subject that it behooves us to grow in our understanding of how deeply important she is. How you view the church reflects upon how you view Christ. Christ Himself has made Himself so inseparable from His church that to affront the church or to speak evil about the church or to dishonor her or persecute her, He takes it as one and the same as Himself. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? As He's going to arrest the church. And keeping all this very close to who we are at Heritage and our vision of the church, I would like to assert that we at Heritage have a very high view of the church. And I hope that's true of you personally. Certainly something that we hope to cultivate and continue to cultivate because I hope it reflects that we have a high view of Christ Himself. Can you have a high view of the church and not of Christ? I think you can. And that's certainly not the category we want to be in. And that's why I believe it's important for us to understand the connection between the two, the inseparable connection, so that when we have a high view of church, we are adoring and we are loving all the more its head, its husband. We have a very high view of membership in Christ's church. Yes, membership. It's biblical. And we have a very high view of it. We have a high view of its officers and the deacons and the elders. And we have a very high view of its government and its authority. We have a very high view of what it means to bind and to loose one from their sins. We have a very high view of the institution of the church. Of which so many have cast off today. And perhaps maybe you've heard. Well, I just don't believe in the institutional church, or I'm just tired of the institutional church, or I'm walking away from it. Just look at the the shambles. That's not us. That's not us here. We take these matters very seriously. We believe your church membership is necessary for your salvation. 
In saying this, I'm not suggesting that you are saved by your church membership. Far from it. But so united is your salvation in Christ alone, by faith alone, to your membership in the church that this has been universally accepted principle throughout the history of the church and especially in the Reformation. Our own confession states in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 25, on the church, paragraph 2, when it speaks about the visible church, that apart from the visible church, there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Now, if that statement sounds strong to you, it just reveals how much we have been indoctrinated and watered down with a low view of the church that's so prominent today in evangelical circles, in Protestant churches, in Reformed churches. To understand these principles requires us to consider the nature of our salvation along with the nature of the church. If we happen to think that our nature of our salvation is merely going to heaven when we die, we've got a lot of ground to uncover to undo that notion. To help us understand the nature of our salvation as it pertains to the nature of the church, we will begin by considering some fundamentals of what the church is. And what is the nature of the church? I'm hoping you have about ten questions so far. Let's look at the church from really just a very narrow one of those aspects this morning from our text. The church is the body of Christ. And before we even consider what the body of Christ means, that particular phrase, let's just consider something here from verse 23. When it says, for the husband is the head of the wife, is also Christ is the head of the church, and He is the Savior of the body. Christ is the Savior of the body. And apart from that body of which Christ is the Savior, there is no ordinary possibility of salvation to individuals. Now, throughout the Old Testament Torah, and when I mean Torah, I'm talking about the first five books of the Bible, which we call the Mosaic or the Law, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Exodus Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. There were those warning signs or those warnings that God gives to those who did not follow God's laws on matters that pertain to their salvation. And the catchphrase that I'd like for us to hear on this, he shall be cut off from his people. That was the catchphrase. The first occurrence of that phrase was given to us in Genesis 17 as it pertains directly to the doctrine of circumcision. When God gave circumcision as a sign and the seal of the covenant to Abraham and to his household, those who do not observe that will be cut off from his people. The second reference, which I think is notable, of that particular phrase 
pertains to the instructions of Passover. When Passover was first given in Exodus 12, and for those who disdain or do not obey or follow the laws of the Passover, that person shall be cut off from his people. Both the initiatory right into the people of God, circumcision, and its ongoing right of the people of God, Passover, were framed with the warnings about being cut off from the people. Being cut off from the people to whom redemption belonged. I counted some 27 or 29 times, somewhere in that ballpark, that that phrase was used in the Torah alone about being cut off from his people. Now one should never suppose that he had to maintain their salvation by observing the law. That was true even in Old Testament Israel. You never obtained salvation by keeping the law, and you never maintained salvation in keeping the law. You never obtained it by circumcision, you never maintained it by Passover. But if one had the Spirit of God in him, yes, and the saints of the Old Testament had the Spirit of God in them, they were regenerated just like we were, and that's the only way you can come to faith in Christ, in the promised seed of the woman, in the very covenant promises, you first had to be changed by the Spirit of God and regenerated, and the Spirit of God indwelt a man. There is a difference in the Old Covenant to the New Covenant in terms of the empowering principle of the Holy Spirit, and in the Old Testament, the empowering principle of the Holy Spirit primarily uh, was on prophets, priests, and kings. The promise of the Spirit is that it will be poured out upon all God's people, a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. Without digressing too far into that particular idea, the Spirit of God was in the people. But if one had the Spirit of God in him, he would desire to follow the Lord's instruction and to live in compliance of God's Lordship by observing and obeying His law. You know, it's no different today. The implications of that phrase, to be cut off from Israel, imply that the person would be cut off from the land of the living. He would be outside of the realm of God's saving work. He would be cut off from the plan of God. He would be cut off from the grace of God. And ultimately, he would be cut off from God himself. Now, all that Old Testament teaching of Israel is foundational to a correct understanding of the church. There is so much unfortunate confusion today because of dispensational and baptistic hermeneutics where the Old Testament Israel is seen as something completely different than the New Testament church. And guess what? We have all been affected and influenced by that teaching. I don't care how Reformed and Presbyterian you are. It's right in the midst of the camp. There is such a sharp divide between the Old Testament and the New Testament that the two are often seen as mutually exclusive when it comes to the people of God. But the New Testament reveals that the church is the blossoming flower and the fruit of the same tree of Israel. 
when we come to the New Testament teaching of the church. And by the way, Keith read um, Ephesians chapter 1. The little epistle of Ephesians is an epistle that uh, is an epistle about the doctrine of the church. It's profound, even in its brevity. And it will be our habit for the next several weeks to read a chapter in its entirety in Ephesians for our New Testament reading. And we'll systematically do that until we're finished with that book, which won't be long. But when we come to the New Testament teaching of the church, it builds upon everything that has gone before. It doesn't start all over. It actually comes into a, a flowering of all the promises and prophets and all of the, what the law and the Psalms and the history and prophets reveal. The very concept of Israel in the beginning of this new nation was the rough draft of what the church would become when Messiah would arrive. It was the foundational work that provided for the rest of the building to be built. It was the planting of the seed and nurturing that into a mature tree so that in time it would give forth the bud and the blossom and the fruit. In other words, the church is not something that emerged out of nowhere, completely separate from all the work of God in the formation and establishment of Israel that had gone before it. And we consider the body that Christ saves, He is the Savior of the body. It is the fullness of Israel as Jesus the Messiah has come to save her, and He's got a broader idea in mind as He extends it to the Gentiles. And this great kingdom of which Daniel had been longing for now has come in the Messiah. And this great kingdom of light has come to rest upon the earth. And the rest of our hope is here upon the earth. Even our final consummation in the resurrected glory when heaven comes down to the earth and our resurrection is here. And when God comes here finally in glory. See, it is not as though that the commonwealth of Israel has been done away with. In fact, that's not how the Bible puts it at all. But rather, the commonwealth has expanded into a more glorious body. If you have your Bibles right there, and they happen to be open in Ephesians 5, just turn back just a few pages, and we'll actually have this as our reading for next Lord's Day. But Ephesians chapter 2, and maybe as we read it next Lord's Day, it'll have a little bit more insight and maybe a little more sensitivity to this subject matter. Ephesians chapter 2, now let's skip down to verse 11. Therefore remember that you, and he's speaking about the Gentiles in the flesh. Now Gentiles in the flesh would certainly incorporate unspiritual Jews. But it also incorporates the broader category of the Gentiles who lived apart from the commonwealth of Israel. You who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. In other words, you Gentiles, which most of you and maybe all of you are, and myself included, and let's put ourselves back in the first century where this would have probably a greater height of understanding. Now those 
of you, we're called uncircumcision by those who are of the circumcised. Jews will call us and refer to us as the uncircumcised. Yes, so that's the idea in verse 12, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Stop right there. Apart from Israel and God's working salvifically in Israel, us Gentiles who were not a part of that body had no hope of Christ. We did not have the promises in the covenant. It was only within the confines of that commonwealth that the gospel was made known. And then it goes on. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Brought near to what? Brought near and engrafted into the very commonwealth, the very body of the elect of people that God had planned for in Christ. It is the commonwealth of Israel that has continued, but has have an expansion of a new meaning of what that unfolds for us with the Spirit of God in the New Testament and in the age in which we now live in these last days. See, it goes on in Ephesians 3. The first 11 verses of Ephesians 3 tells us that this church is the great mystery which has been hidden in all the previous ages, but now is made manifest in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel. In fact, it's one of what I would call one of the high watermarks of all of Scripture is Ephesians 3. It's an incredible passage. That what God was doing from the very beginning is establishing a kingdom with the Lord Jesus Christ as being the great King that would sit upon the throne and it would reign over all the affairs of this earth. And now which these things have been hidden in its, in its some part, but yet given in prophecy, given in object lessons of the Old Testament ceremonial law, and given to the object of Israel and the commonwealth there, now has come to full blossom, and this mystery which has been hidden has now been made manifest to you, of which I, Paul, am as a minister, as he would go on to say, that now even the manifold wisdom of God is being made known to the angels and the principalities and the powers as they observe the church. This great mystery. But it gets deeper than that. When the text before us says that Christ is the Savior of the body, it implies that the realm of His saving grace is manifest within and exclusively within His body. Said another way, apart from the sphere of Christ's saving work, that is the body, the church, there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. The very nature of the church herself is the body for whom Christ died. His atoning death. The death that was salvific. The death that was propitiatory. The death that was expiatory. But what do we mean by the body of Christ? Let's now change gears a little bit and consider that very multifaceted 
answer, and we won't exhaust it this morning, but I want to focus on a particular aspect of the body of Christ that this text brings out. I think it's quite astounding. The body of Christ, when he says he is the Savior of the body, and particularly in this text, there is a physicality that is implied. Physicality. In fact, that physicality is more important than most people realize. It very well may be something that you haven't grown up hearing in church. But it's an important concept in doctrine because it keeps us from new forms of an ancient heresy that we know as Gnosticism or Doceticism. Of which the modern church is very prone Gnosticism, and uh, rather than getting into the technicalities, but there's a, a simplicity that we can consider that the spirit is good, the physical is bad, and so you've got the material which is bad, spirit is good. And so we kind of live in light of the invisible, abstract, spiritual things. That's why the evangelical church has got a, 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 a spiritual place of which our greatest hope is, and that is in this heaven, this far-off place that we go when we die, and that tends to be our greatest hope. But we forget that the greatest hope that the Apostle Paul reminds us of is not the place at which now we go to when we die and we depart from this body and we're to be present with the Lord. That is a far better thing. But the Apostle Paul says the greatest hope is the resurrection here upon the earth where heaven comes down and earth and heaven meet and I am now restored in the fullness of body and physicality with spirit in, in, in pure and, and enjoy the very thing that God had intended from the very get-go but all the more glorious. That should be our longing. That should be the focus. That is the end toward which we are going. But we've come so Gnostic in our modern day that even things like beauty and aesthetics are marginalized and minimized and not even considered. But the implication of physicality relates to all the material things of the gospel. And no, that doesn't mean that I have to, to be Thomas Aquinas and take in the... the the, the ancient Greek thought and concretize them into the spiritual realm. But what it does mean is that we, we must be all in the above physical and spiritual, and it's an all comprehensive understanding of the gospel and the very significant importance of this physicality of the gospel relates to the sacraments themselves. It relates to aesthetics and beauty. Do we even know what it means to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness? Do we have a concept of what it means when Aaron's garments are actually designed by God Himself for glory and beauty? And what does that have to do with our salvation? Or the very design of the temple, which was patterned after the tabernacle, which was patterned after the garden, which was patterned after... Exactly what we're going to have in glory. What were the two purposes or the purpose at all of the two pillars on Solomon's temple? They weren't structural. They were for beauty. 
Are those just mere after embellishments? Were they just, no, this is the word of God of special revelation given to us, and we understand that there were pomegranates and carvings and things like that that God deliberately prescribed and told us about because it has to do somehow with our salvation. God doesn't waste words here. These are embodiment principles. It has to do even with the local and the physical aspects of the church. And we need to take some time to flesh out some understanding here. I have had multiple conversations with people over the years marginalizing the, 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 the local church because they are a member of the universal church. And you can just see where that goes. Well, where, where were you baptized? What does that have to do with anything? Was there real water, or were we just using some kind of universal abstract concept of water? Will we eat real bread and drink real wine today? Indeed we will. Where? Here. With whom? With you. Who else? With the Lord. Why? Because you're the body. And there's a physicality that is so important that we have marginalized and become Gnostic in very tendencies of these things. The very nature of Christ's incarnation and resurrection is all about physicality and all about our salvation. We cannot marginalize that. And the importance in understanding the future hope of our resurrection and eternal life here on earth is all about physicality. Not at the exclusion of spirituality, but I'm telling you, it's all in both and. Great is the mystery of godliness that God was manifest in the flesh. Well, let's look at two aspects of that physicality of the body of Christ here. And let's flesh that out a little bit because it does have implications. The ripple effect does happen all the way down to how you view the local church, how you view your membership, how you view the sacraments, how you view the physical things, how you view the resurrection, how you view the future glory. It all comes back to having significant implications. The first aspect of this physicality of the body of Christ is to, that puts it to us this way, Christ is the head of the body. And we read that in Ephesians chapter 1, and we see it again in chapter 5. But we have it fleshed out for us in Romans 5 when it speaks about Christ being the covenantal head of the elect race. It contrasts the covenantal head or the federal head of Adam with the federal head of Christ. And as Adam was in all, as we are all in Adam, we all sin and we all die. So in Christ, we are all made alive. That covenantal head of a, an elect race required the incarnation, the embodiment, the flesh and the bones and the blood of God and his bodily resurrection in order for our sin to be imputed to Him and His righteousness to be imputed to us as a complete, perfect, substitutionary atonement before God. 
It goes right into Romans 6. It talks about our vital union with Christ. And that union cannot be merely just spiritualized. How many people I've ever heard say, well, circumcision in the Old Testament was just a physical and temporal sign. Baptism is a spiritual sign. How many times have I heard that when it talks about the circumcision and, and baptism in the New Testament, that so many times, well, we're just talking about spiritual baptism and spiritual circumcision. It has nothing to do with the physical. I dare say that it cannot help it to have to do with the physical because we wouldn't know what he's even talking about if it didn't have reference to the physical, even though it's revealing something spiritual. See, this has a lot to do with the way we interpret the Scripture in our hermeneutics. It has a lot to do with how we think about our vital union, this mystical union with Jesus Christ. The physicality of the body where Christ is the head is important to embrace because the church is the physical manifestation of Christ upon the earth. At the very end of chapter 1 of Ephesians, where it speaks about Christ as the head of the church, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. We know that the only thing that the world sees of Jesus, he see, they see it in the church. They see it of the church. Because the church is the physical manifestation of Christ upon the world. Upon the earth. It's his body. His physicality is essential to understand not only the nature of the church, but how we are to function while we live here on church, on the, on the earth. It touches everything about our contributing purposes that we'll talk about later, but it, 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 it's imperative to how we think about evangelization and discipleship, the edification ministry of the church and our worship, missions, our work our love, and our one-anothering. So we have an aspect here where the body is called the body of Christ, where Christ is the head of this body. And there is a metaphorical reference to that as well in 1 Corinthians 12, which we'll take some time later to look at. But here we have, really, the head and the body. Right? <laughs> And it's used in a metaphorical sense in this physicality of the body. In 1 Corinthians 12, we see that the church is revealed as a living organism. It's living, it's vital, it's made up of lively members. And it's made up of many members, but it's only one body. Part of that mystery is that expression is being used in the local church, for the local church, about the local church. Part of the mystery of the church is that the local church is treated by the Scripture as the church. Even while there are more than one congregation. In other words, heritage is considered the church. 
It doesn't mean that this is the only aspect of it, but there is the way that the Scripture talks about a full and biblical church being the church, with all of its parts necessary to be the body of Christ. It's a living, functioning organism. The church of Corinth was addressed as the church. And the body life expressed was local, and it was physical, and it was lived out in the fullness and the entirety of the body in that local place. That's part of the mystery. I'm not trying to explain it away because, yes, there was also the church in Ephesus, there was the church in Galatia, there was the churches you know, here and there, and the church at Laodicea, and, and here we have the Apostle Paul writing, and there's a mystery here. Well, there's another aspect in our passage before us regarding the physicality of the body. The first aspect of the physicality of the body has to do with Christ being the head of the body, and He is the head in a federal sense of the body, he is also a metaphorical head in terms of the functioning with the physicality of the body as it relates to this kind of head to this kind of body as it's revealed in 1 Corinthians 11. We will take some more time in that passage, but not today. But the second aspect of the physicality of the body of Christ comes from the latter part of our text this morning where Christ is the husband with his bride. We have three weddings coming up this year. What a joyful thing it is to think about weddings and marriages and unions with new households beginning. It says in verse 29, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Wait, I'm going I'm I'm to slow down. Just make sure you're, you're with me. You didn't fall asleep. Just help me here. You've got the Bible in front of you. Just... Fill in the blank. For no one ever hated his own flesh. Okay? The word there is flesh. Even though some of your translations may say body. But nourishes it and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of His body, of His and For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. This passage leaves no question that it's referring back to Genesis chapter 2, quoting from Genesis chapter 2, at the first creation of woman, which was made from the side of man. Woman was deliberately and always designed to be made out of man, for man. Even on the sixth day of creation, God was already, He already had it all figured out. He already had all this in plan, and He's going to bring this passage in the delight to us today as we think back upon Genesis 2 at the very beginning of creation. And the principle here is that the church is the bride created directly from the flesh and the bones of Christ Himself. Literally, the flesh and the bones of Christ Himself, as much as Eve was literally created out of the side of Adam. 
The very principle of the incarnation of Jesus Christ becoming fully man is profound here in the light of this text. The church was God's creation out of Christ's own body. His fleshly, human body. We have been made out of His body for Him to be a companion suitable for Him. The husband and the wife marriage relationship that we enjoy in this life is but a metaphor, a beautiful metaphor, an astounding metaphor, but the reality here is that speaking about Christ in the church. And that's why the Scripture goes right on after the two become one. But I'm speaking about Christ in the church. Don't, don't miss it here. That's, what, that's how Paul's saying this. See, we're new creatures in Christ. We have become a new creation in Christ. We are part of the new heavens and the new earth. A new creation in Jesus Christ has begun, and as the bride was created out of Him, it is created for Him, and in union with Him, and such a blessed union, that the two become together into one flesh. We see the physicality of a man and a wife then being joined together in one flesh, which is a beautiful doctrine and something never to be ashamed of. And we can speak openly about it in terms of the entire congregation because I do not want us to think one negative iota about a husband and a wife coming together in holy matrimony and what the Scripture says is the two become one flesh. The Song of Solomon is an entire love song which interpretation must be taken as Christ and His church as a type. And it's beautiful. It's glorious. And if there's any way that God wants to show you the beauty and the intimacy and the love that He has for you, He does it through these wonderful living metaphors one of which is the conjugal relationship between a man and his wife, which is so holy and truly reveals more profound principles of an intimate, inseparable, beautiful, glorious, physical, and mystical union of Christ and His church. I'm talking about that, he says, when the two become one flesh. Flesh of His flesh and bone of His bones are you. Are you. The physicality has profound implications upon the Gospel itself. Man, we have a high view of the church. I hope you do. And a higher view of the church Husbands, you're going to have a higher view of your bride. Ladies, you're going to have a higher view of your Lord. Capital L, husband. As a Sarah. Because it's all finding its beauty and its consummation, its reality in Christ and His bride. Oh, this has implications right here before us today. 
salvific implications. In a moment, we're going to go behind the veil into the presence of the Shekinah glory of God. Interesting how God designed the tabernacle and the temple. You come into the courtyard and you're, you're in a holy place. And then you come into the holy place where the altar of incense is burning, which are the prayers of the saints. And the lampstand, which is the light that illuminates that now otherwise dark place. And the table of showbread showing the consecration. But then there's that veil. That veil which is a fine tapestry that's woven of blue and scarlet and purple thread. What's behind the veil? Oh, it's the Ark of the Covenant. It is the covenant process. It's the covenant law. It's the beauty where the Shekinah glory of God dwells. It's the throne of God. It's the atoning lid. Who was allowed to go? Nothing but the high priest and only once a year. That is the most coveted and the most holy place. And the Scriptures call it the holiest place, which we have translated holy of holies. So while there's a presence of God where two or three are gathered together, there's a very special Shekinah glory presence when we go into the holiest place. And how do we go into the holiest place but beyond and through the veil? And the veil is the flesh of Jesus Christ, Hebrews says. And through the flesh we enter into the very Shekinah glory of God which is only for God's people to come into. Lest the holiness which is so beautiful in our sight sift us and burn us up as chaff. The judgment fires of God are also the holy fires of God. And we go there through the sacrament. When we consider Christ and His church and this beautiful union that Christ has, inseparable of head and body and husband and bride, You personally and individually are in union in faith, by faith with Jesus Christ, but not apart from His body. But as a member of His mystical body. In fact, we've only looked at one aspect of the church today as it pertains to the body of Christ, and that's just the physicality. We've only tapped into the, 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 this just the tip of the iceberg, and my message is now over. The physicality has implications for our vision of heritage and the importance of the, the local church and what that means and the membership in the local church and being a living member of this living organism where Christ is inseparable from us as our head. And hopefully you will begin to see why the sacraments are so important as we experience sensibly our union with Christ with a physical tangible elements of water, wine, and bread with each other in the context of us coming together as one. And we are nourished 
today by Christ's physical body and blood. Yes, and with His Spirit. But as John Calvin would hold, that it is only through the physical body of Christ that all of His saving benefits are received. And we would agree with that. We should begin to see the importance of worship as it pertains to our salvation and the very intimate enjoyment of God. The metaphor of marriage itself should reveal to us the pleasures of God. The goodness of God. The intimate enjoyment that we have with God and God has with us. God is so good. And He gives us so many earthly metaphors designed to teach us how good He is. We started off in the matins of service this morning. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And now that concept comes together here with the concept of physicality. Is there spirituality and spiritual dimension behind it? Absolutely yes. We are body and spirit, but we are not just spirit. And that's what I want to steer us away from. We are a comprehensive whole. And even the body of Christ is not merely metaphorical. It is also physical. So when we talk about loving our brother, it's not only in word only, but word and deed, which means we have to roll our sleeves up and touch our brother and love our brother. See, it's physical. The church is the sphere in which we learn to enjoy God and experience His saving graces. The church is not optional. It is essential because of the very nature of what the church is. May God give us His grace to understand just a little more of this profound mystery of which we are all a part. May Christ be honored. And I hope we're all the more excited about coming to His table this morning. Our gracious Father, how thankful we are for the mercies that You have had upon Your people through the ages, that You have now engrafted us into that commonwealth of Israel, that we are now partakers of the saints in light, that we have forgiveness of sins, having been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and have been engrafted into the one tree, the one people of God, the bride, the body of Christ. As we come together around the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and we consider that the bread and wine are pointing us towards something more profound as we think about the sacramental union connecting between the sign and the very reality to which it symbolizes, we pray that You would meet with us. And may we not rush that time, but rejoice as we taste and we see that You are good. Give us a greater appreciation for the Gospel and for the church and for Christ and His bride and for our participation that You've called us to that we would take heed to the ministry in her that You've each called us to. How thankful we are, our Heavenly Savior. And we pray this in Your glorious, majestic name. Amen.